My name is Malcolm and I have the privilege of leading the church here at uh, Dundonald and I want to say thank you to all of you for taking the time to be here and for those of you that are joining us online, a huge thank you to you as well. We don't take it for granted and we are thrilled at what God is doing in this church family. We're amazed and grateful today, this morning for, I don't know, oh gosh, it's been months now, Every week, a couple of people this morning made first-time commitments to the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, one of them at least is here tonight uh, listening to God's Word. Let's give God a clap offering for all that he's doing amongst us. And it is my prayer that if you are here for the first time, or you are visiting online for the first time, that you will know God's grace speaking into your life as well. I'm not sure if the arrow sign went up behind me, but if it hasn't and you have children and they want to go out, please feel free to take them out now, but I think most of them have gone. I'd like to talk to you this evening for a little while on how to live a prosperous life. Stephen Covey, the famous writer who made an awful lot of money out of his book, in 1989 wrote a book called Seven Habits for Highly Effective People. I wonder how many of you read it. It, or have read it. It's a, it's a book that managers and directors uh, recommended to all of their employees at one point. It's slightly less popular now than it used to be. It contains a great deal of wisdom, actually. The seven habits of highly effective people that he articulates are, number one, be proactive. Create a circle of influence and make sure that you're moving within it. Number two, begin with the end in mind. Remember vision and objectives and mission in your life. Number three, put first things first. Invest in your own integrity and your character. Make sure that you honor your promises and you fulfill your word. Number four, think in win-win circles. Not that somebody has to lose for you to win, but it's possible for everybody to win in certain circumstances. Number five, seek first to understand, then you will be understood. Practice the art of listening. Number six, synergize. Work with people, not against them. Find ways of cooperating and trusting and building team and mutual respect. And number seven, sharpen your saw. Keep and maintain your edge in whatever you do. They sound great, don't they? No, you're not that impressed. But what happens when everything goes wrong? When all your dreams come cascading down around you, when a doctor tells you, that you're now fighting for your life. Would all of those things help? Some of them would, I think, but I'm not sure all of them would. When your life turns out to be a plan B life, and if you pause for a minute, brothers and sisters and friends, and think about it, the reality is that we're all living plan B lives. Nobody's life turned out exactly as you thought it would. The famous American preacher, Billy Graham, the evangelist, was once having a conversation with his wife, Ruth Graham, about prayer. And she said to him, honey, in the way that only Americans can, I'm so glad God doesn't always answer prayer. And he said, why? She said, because if he had, I wouldn't have married you. <laughs> Everybody leads a plan B life. So that includes all of us here and watching online. What do you do, though, when your plan B or C or D or E is so far removed from the life that you thought that you were going to live that you don't know whether you're going to be a, get back to it? Is there a way of being able to prosper in our lives that is not dependent on external circumstances. That's what I want to explore with you this evening. Is there a secret to prosperous living that means whether you stand in the midst of the greatest blessing and positive surprises that you have ever experienced or you stand on the nuclear devastation of loss and sadness and sorrow, 
that you can prosper. Would you please turn with me in the New Testament to Paul's letter to the Philippians. If you're not familiar with where that is in the Bible, then perhaps someone who has brought a Bible with you could show you where it is, but it's about a third of the way back from the end of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Chapter 4. The man writing this letter is called Paul, and he's writing it to a church, a community of followers of Jesus Christ based in Philippi in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, Greece, around that area. And he wants to encourage them to keep going in their faith. He wants to remind them of God's grace at work in their lives. He visited this area, and you can read that story in Acts chapter 16. The story of the early church is told in the book of Acts. He writes back to them, And uh, tells them various things, tells them to keep going, tells them to follow Christ, tells them that Christ is a good example, tells them that they can be shaped by their future more than they can be shaped by their past. He encourages them to press into all that God has for them. And then he starts to close off his letter and he says this in um, Philippians chapter 4, we'll read from verse 8. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me but had no opportunity to show it. They've sent them some money. Not that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through Christ, through him who strengthens me. In any case, it was kind of you to share my distress. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. So there it is, chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What a remarkable phrase. What is this man's secret? Because the man that's writing this has been beaten, whipped, (coughs) shipwrecked three, possibly four times, left for dead, rejected, laughed at, ridiculed. He's been educated in the best schools. He has moved in the most influential circles. He sat at the very zenith of Jewish authority and power. He has been a public figure. He's one of the world's greatest thinkers ever. Up there with Aristotle and Plato and Augustine and Kant and Hegel and lots of others. If you were writing a list of the 10 or 15 people that have influenced the world's thinking most profoundly as philosophers, the Apostle Paul would be one of them. And yet here as he writes to this church in Asia Minor, having experienced the great highs and the great lows of life, he says this to them, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. He's found the secret. He's discovered what it is to be able to live in the winds of adversity and flourish. To be able to face the unknown and flourish. To be able to face great joy and success and flourish. His words are important. They're not just an addendum at the bottom of a letter that we should rush past. In fact, they're even more important when you examine what they say. I can do all things. The word that is used there for I can do is a word that is only used about 29 times in the rest of the Bible. 
And it means to be strong, to be well, to be able to have the power to overcome, to be able to choose. It doesn't just mean I can do all things. It means I can face all things. I can walk through all things. I can endure all things. I can be fashioned by or, or, or pass through all things without being destroyed by them. Wow. Whatever that is, however he's learned to do that, we need to pause and stop and think about it and ask, could that be true in our own lives? Is it possible for somebody today to face the deepest adversities and still come out the other side without having been destroyed by them? Because if it is, this is something that is worth pursuing. Paul says it is possible. This kind of prospering can happen. A prospering that isn't dependent on your circumstances. A prospering that isn't dependent on what other people say to you. That isn't dependent on what happens in your life this week. Let me pause here for a moment and talk to those of you that are already followers of Jesus Christ. This prospering isn't dependent on everything going well in your life. I hear a lot of Christians that talk of prospering, but what they really mean is they're holding on until everything works out. They really mean, I'm fed up with this set of circumstances and I'm just trusting that God will change them. That's not prospering. That's not what Paul says here either. He has found a way of living in the midst of anything that is thrown at him and still flourishing. What is it? Look at verse 11 for a minute. The Philippians have sent him a gift and he's very grateful, but he says, I don't want you to think that I was in some way dependent on it. Verse 11, not that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. That word contentment here doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. And there's not really a strong or particular way of translating it, therefore. Some people guess it means self-sufficiency because it's made up of two separate words in, in, in the original language that it was written in Greek. I'm not sure that it does. But it does mean something like this. I, I can't translate it. I'm not clever enough. Nobody's really able to translate this word. It means that at the very center of Paul's life, he had a peace, an unshakable confidence that meant that he could go to bed at night with a sense of well-being in his soul. And it wasn't rooted in him. It was rooted in something or someone else. His contentment didn't flow from his emotions. Many of us say thank goodness to that, don't we? Because our emotions are more up and down than the fiddler's elbow. Or is that only me? <laughs> our emotions are all over the place depending on whether we've had good news or bad news. How could they not be? That's what happens to human beings. Our emotions are driven by the circumstances around us. It wasn't grounded in his intellect. Many of us say thank goodness for that too, eh? It wasn't grounded in his ability to understand and in his ability to work it all out, to have a plan. So Stephen Covey's advice begins to break down. It was rooted in something or someone else. It was rooted in a, in a third power or a second power, if you like, but not in his power. His contentment was directly connected to something or someone else. I have learned to be content with whatever I have. Wow. Whatever I have, Paul. What do you mean, whatever you have? Surely you mean temporarily until things get better because we sit comfortably with that, right? He goes on to explain what he means by whatever I have. He says in verse 12, I know what it is to have little and to have plenty. I know what it is to be well fed and to go hungry. I know what it is to have plenty and to be in need. And I find the secret of contentment in the midst of it. 
These are life-changing words. These are attitude-changing words. If we let them sink in, and whatever it is, we, we want to know, right? And I know what it is to have plenty in any and all circumstances. I have learned the secret of being well-fed and going hungry, of having plenty and being in need. That word secret doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament either. In this tiny little section of words, this man is saying things that don't appear anywhere else in the Bible. (coughs) Using words and descriptions that can't be found anywhere else. There's a contentment that doesn't rest in me, he says. There's a, there's a peace that doesn't flow from inside of me. There's, not, there's, there's, a, there's a source that isn't me, that holds me in the midst of everything. And I want to share that secret with you. If he was a 21st century money-making public speaker, he'd do a TED talk about it. And it would go viral. What is that secret? Surely it must be complicated. Surely it must be hard. Surely it must have lots of things around it that we need to scratch our heads at and try to understand. Well, before I tell you what the secret is, let me suggest something that will be less comfortable for you, but is true. Just from what Paul has said already, whatever the secret is, whatever this contentment source is, you can't learn it without going through the trial first. There's no shortcut to this. And you'll only know you have it when you're in the midst of something and you realize that you're still standing. That something or someone is holding you up. His secret is God. More specifically, his secret is who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for him. I have learned to be content in all circumstances because I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Liddy, gentlemen, if you're not yet a Christian this evening, then you're missing the key ingredient It is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can carry you through unfathomable situations and bring you out the other side. His grace and his mercy and his love is the only thing that will see you through. Nothing else. Brother and sister in Christ, Christian here this evening or watching online, you will not discover that God is enough until he is all you have. And some of you are in that position this evening. There are folks sitting here or listening online and God is your only hope. And it's only when you're in that set of circumstances that you can discover the reality that he is all you need. His grace, his love, his mercy can carry you through every trial if you will let it. But for that to happen, I invite you to reflect on four simple things that might need to take place in your life. First of all, you might need to redefine what living a prosperous life looks like. You see, Christian prosperity and I'm a Christian theologian, I'm a Christian preacher, I'm a, I'm a Christian pastor. Christian prosperity is important and it often doesn't look like what many modern Christians think it looks like. Prosperity is not the absence of pain, it's not the absence of struggle, it's not the absence of difficulty and it's not the absence of heartbreak. Prosperity is the presence of God. There's a man in the Old Testament whose name is Joseph. His story is told from Genesis chapter 37 through to Genesis chapter 50. In Genesis chapter 39, he has been through 15 or 20 years of trial and difficulty and heartbreak. He's being imprisoned, falsely accused of rape. Um, 
taken and sold as a, as, a, as a slave into an Egyptian caravan that was moving through the desert. He's a people trafficked, lost man, disconnected from his family, an asylum seeker in a country that he never wanted to go to, a falsely accused criminal uh, serving time for something that he never did. And here's what the Bible says about him in Genesis chapter 39, verses one, two, and three. And whatever Joseph did, God prospered him. Wherever he was, God brought favor upon him. It wasn't dependent on his circumstances. It wasn't dependent on what other people said about him. Somehow this slave, this man who had lost all his freedoms and had all his dignity stripped from him and whose family thought he was dead, was able to prosper. That's a picture of Christian prospering. Christian prosperity, Christian prospering in life is not the absence of sorrow and heartbreak. It is walking through it knowing that God is with you. If you have come tonight or if you come from a church tradition that tells you that God will always say yes to you, he'll never let anything bad happen to you. You'll never go through affliction or heartbreak or difficulty or pain or sorrow. And when you do, you are to reject it and pretend it's not there and everything will be fine. I'm not able to help. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that life is hard, that it is complicated, that good people um, get sick and die that mothers and fathers lose their children, that marriages break, that promises are betrayed, that heartbreak visits homes, that sadness shadows us. Life happens to people who follow Christ as much as it happens to people who don't. The difference is how we handle it. And I've heard a lot of people preaching over the years that have taken people who are already brokenhearted, who are already devastated, who are already going through some of the hardest chapters and seasons in their lives that you could ever imagine and made them feel worse by telling them that they have to pray their way out of it or confess their way out of it or worship their way out of it or, 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 or declare their way out of it. None of which is what the Bible says. Instead, the Bible starts by suggesting that we need to redefine what it is to lead a prosperous life. Secondly, we need to realign ourselves with that redefinition. The man that wrote this letter, Paul, wrote another series of letters, a number of letters, 13 of them are in the New Testament, but he wrote two to a church in a place called Corinth. And in his second letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, the Apostle Paul talks about a struggle in his own life. We don't know what it is. It might have been that he was going blind. It might have been that he was a widow. It might have been that he had um, a foot abnormality. It might have been that he had a speech impediment. We've actually no idea what it is. But he had something that was so severe that in his life that he asked God to take it away and God didn't do it. So he asked God again and God didn't take it away a second time. And he asked God a third time and God said no three times in a row. Paul understood this as a messenger from Satan, from the adversary of human souls, sent to destroy him. And three times he said to God, take this away. And three times God didn't take it away. And in the end, this is what Paul says that he felt God was saying. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse nine. My grace is sufficient for you because my strength is made perfect in weakness. That's not the answer we want, is it? Well, you might want it. It's not an answer I would love. God, take this away. No, God, take this away. No, God, take this away. No, God, why aren't you taking this away? because I'd rather have you dependent on me in this weakness than independent of me without it. The Christian life is one in which we realign ourselves. We learn to rely on something different to us, something more powerful, something stronger. And if we will let them, our heartbreaks and our sorrows and our difficulties 
can become bridges that lead us to a greater dependency on Jesus Christ. But they're hard bridges to walk across. In 2002, three weeks before my dad uh, dropped dead, we went round the Antrim coast. It's not a sad story, don't worry. And my father was 71 when he died. He was as fit as a fiddle. He just was like, he was, uh, he was uh, yeah, it was as that'll do. He was as fit as a fiddle. And we went up around the Antrim coast. Is anybody else here victim of that wonderful mentality in Northern Ireland that every, well, you were probably all in church. I didn't grow up in church. But many Sundays come snow, sunshine, rain, hail, wind, no matter what happened, particularly on bank holiday weekends, on Boxing Day, and on Sundays that were followed by a Monday that people, my mum and dad had a day off. Seven of us, me, my three elder brothers, and my elder sister, were bundled into the back of a bottle green Vauxhall Viva with a black vinyl roof. We were like the clampets on tour <laughs> with a packet of egg and onion sandwiches and mock crab wrapped up in tinfoil. Anybody following this story? <laughs> that stunk out the car and occasionally cockles that my mother used to have. I used to have to go on a Tuesday morning or a Tuesday night depending on when the high tide was. <laughs> this is like something out of Oliver Twist. <laughs> to Bally Kindler. Anybody know where Bally Kindler is? And, and, and my mother would send me out with a pair of shoes that had big soles onto the, the sand flats with a black bin bag and say, come back when it's full of cockles. And I'd be scraping the, do you, do, you, do you know what cockles are? I would fill this black bin bag full of cockles and then we'd go to Drains Bay and fill another black bin bag full of Willicks or Winkles if you're from England. And we'd bring them home and put them into big pots and boil them until they all squealed and put them into wee tubs and sell them at the market and the Lammas Fair and the Nuts Corner on a Sunday and in Larne on a Friday morning for 40 or 50p with sandwiches that my mother made out of paste. <laughs> and curry that was powdered like Vesta curry, but then nobody had curry and they all thought it was great. We're that kind of family. And regularly, when it was bad weather and it was a bank holiday, we would all be bundled into the car and taken up around the Antrim coast and in, a, in a green Vauxhall Viva. And we'd all tumble out somewhere to get sandwiches or to eat our egg and onion and have a flask of tea that was normally cold. Why we didn't just buy a cup of tea, I have no idea. But occasionally, we would venture really far north. It was like the wilds of the, the north of Ireland, you know, the places that you went to in dreams. And we would go to Carrick Reed Rope Bridge. Well, you didn't have to pay to walk across it. And the National Trust weren't taking a lend of you. And we park and walk for miles. Well, I used to enjoy walking that bridge. And then in 2002, three weeks before my dad died, we went on one of these Duncans on tour bus trips. And we stopped at um, Carrick Reed Rope Bridge. My father got up over to the rope bridge. He went, I'm away. He got an ice cream. He said, I'm going across. And away he goes, not holding on to the side, just straight across, and he walks to the other side. And he said, come on over, come on over. And it was blowing like bilio. The bridge was, go was going like that. I said, I'm not walking on that bridge. I didn't go. Why? I was too afraid. It was too unsafe. I thought I'd fall off. I don't want to underestimate the power of fear. When you are facing something that is difficult and heartbreaking and struggling, when you are uncertain about your future, when you are surrounded by sadness and sorrow, I accept that trusting God can feel like walking across Carragher Reed Rope Bridge in a gale. But to stay where you are is worse. Because you will be consumed by fear and sadness and sorrow. I'm not suggesting that the journey is easy, nor am I suggesting that I always make it well. But to realign ourselves with God, to allow ourselves to rely on him is to throw ourselves into the mercy of one who is gracious. Paul discovered that he could face all things by coming to the end of himself and throwing himself on the mercy of God. 
When he wrote to the Ephesian believers in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, he encouraged them to discover the power of God at work in them. And he described it as the same power that raised Christ from the dead living in them. Here's the paradox that I cannot explain to you. Here's the strength that I can't unpack to you because, I, well, because I don't, I don't understand it. When I was 16 years of age, I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. And the power that created the universe came to dwell within me. I don't always feel him. I don't always sense him. But he is always there. I certainly don't feel as if I deserve him. There are moments when I get up and I stand in front of that particular rope bridge and think, I'm not going to make it across this. I don't have the courage or the confidence or the strength to even step onto this bridge. And yet the reality is it will hold me. It'll be safer than staying where I am. I can't explain why God would love Malcolm Duncan like that so much. But I can say this to you without the shadow of a doubt, he loves you in the same way. You don't have to have everything sorted out to trust him. In fact, sometimes I think the greatest exhibition of faith, the greatest exhibition of choice is to stand with broken hearts, broken lives and broken promises scattered all around us and say, I'm going to step into who you are. Tonight's sermon isn't about claiming your victory. It's not about finding your promise. It's not about the miracle that you need. It's about the promise that you can't live without. That right now, should your circumstances never change, Jesus is enough. His grace is enough. And until we get to the place where his grace is enough, everything else will have a greater place in our lives than it should. I invite you to reflect on whether you would let yourself walk on a rope bridge of faith into the arms of the Christ who loves you. To rest in his strength and in his power. You see, earlier on in the letter to the Philippians, Paul said this, I am convinced that he who began a good work in you will finish it in Christ Jesus. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians chapter one, Paul tells them Christ is enough. Philippians chapter two, he tells them the example of Christ is the one that they should follow. Philippians chapter three, he says, I'm putting behind me everything that used to be important to me, my character, my, my education, my family, my language, my culture, all of it is secondary because there's one thing more important than everything else and it's him, it's knowing him, it's coming close to him, it's walking with him, it's allowing him to have his way in my life, it's allowing myself to be fashioned by his grace and by his mercy. And in chapter four, he says, I can do all things through him. This all centers around Jesus. Why would I rely on Jesus for my peace instead of modern psychological methods or something else? Because when Christ died, he died to give me peace. Why would I rely on his strength instead of my own? Because his strength created the universe. Why would I rely on his wisdom? Because he is the wisdom that exists before all things. In him, the whole world is held together in meaning and purpose and significance. Would I, why would I rely on him to sort out my mess? Because he's perfect, he's never got anything wrong and he paid for it. Why would I rely on his presence? Because his presence isn't dependent on how I feel or whether I pass a test or whether I get an A or a B or a C, or I'm able to explain everything about him. His presence is given to me unconditionally when I kneel before the cross. No wonder Paul could say, I know what it is to be in plenty and I know what it is in want. 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. His internal world was reordered around a different magnetic north. His life was orientated around Jesus. Christian is yours. Honestly, genuinely, is our life orientated around Jesus? Or is it orientated around getting a girlfriend, getting a boyfriend, getting married? Is it orientated around a better job? Is it orientated around all the things that are good and healthy? Oh, I know it's hard. And there have been seasons in my life where I've had to make this choice, not just on a moment by, on a day by day basis, but on a moment by moment basis. In the hardest moments, you have to make it almost with every breath. I'm sure many of you have been there. Let me get through 15 minutes, Lord. Let me get through another 15 minutes. Let me get through another 15 minutes. Let me get through another 15 minutes. If you've battled with mental illness, if you've battled with bereavement, if you've battled with loss, if you've battled with heartbreak, you can't even think from day to day. You think from breath to breath, right? From moment to moment, and slowly those moments get further and further apart. And the grace and the mercy of God is this. You can't embrace the life that you have until you're willing to lay down the life that you wanted. But God will give you the grace to lay down the life that you wanted. You can't step into the future that God has for you until you're willing to step away from the one that you had for yourself. How do I live a prosperous life? Sometimes the hardest thing to do is to say, Lord, you must take my heartbreak and remake my life in this moment. But you are enough. And Christ is here. In this room, by the power of his Holy Spirit, If you don't know Jesus Christ yet, that's where this starts. I can do all things through him. You're not gonna find this peace somewhere else. I invite you watching around the world. If you're on your own in a room to get up off your seat and kneel if you're able. And to open your, your hands as if you are releasing a heavy burden and give your life to Jesus Christ. It's successes, it's failures, it's heartbreaks and it's hopes and receive grace from him. And those of us in the room, you haven't got room to kneel. But I invite you to do the same. To open your hands and to give him your heart, your disappointments, your longings, your expectations, your yearnings. And can I say to you something? For those of you that have the deepest and profoundest needs in your lives, as long as there is breath in your body, if I am your pastor, then I will kneel beside you and ask again. I'm not saying you should be resigned to sorrow and sadness. I will weep with you and I will ask God again and again and again beside you. But in the asking, I want to help you to reorientate your heart so that in the end, his presence 
is more important than his gifts. That his grace is enough. Here in our church, we believe that God moves in the modern day through gifts of healing, through gifts of miracles, through gifts of wisdom and knowledge, that occasionally, from time to time, God will give words of wisdom and knowledge and discernment that can be used in a context of public worship to help people to grow in their faith or to guide them in their decision-making. Every day this week, I've been asking the Lord, do you want to do something on, Friday, on Sunday night? I've had a growing sense that he wanted to. And I think he does. I think he wants to open up some hands. On Thursday morning, as I was praying, I saw a person with their hands gripped round a piece of gold. And I don't know whether that gold was money or that gold symbolized a very prized possession or longing in their hearts. And I felt God say, your contentment is so bound up with the gold, whatever the gold is, that your grip is around it, so you're not able to receive strength from me because all of your strength is holding on to this. I think God wants to help you with that tonight. And he asks you to realign yourself with him. On Friday afternoon, as I was writing in my journal, I began to sense that there, were, there would be people here tonight who have become defined by their sorrow and their loss. And God says, I don't want to define you by it. I want to refine you through it. I felt that specifically there were those who had dealt with the sudden and the tragic death of a loved one. And that somehow their death, some of this applied to me, by the way, so I have to be careful that I don't transpose what God was saying about my own life because of suicides in my own life um, onto you. But I felt as if God was saying, for the person who has become defined by grief and sorrow rather than refined by it, you've allowed the moments, the last moments of a person's life to become more important than the whole life that was left behind that. And as a result, you're not able to enter the grieving process properly. I don't think that just applies to those that have lost loved ones through suicide. I think that applies to people that have lost people quickly, unexpectedly. And in your head, you're replaying over and over and over again those last weeks or months or moments with that person. And it's like a DVD that keeps playing. It's like a live stream that gets stuck and buffers back to the same part and does it again and again and again. And God wants you to be able to go back through the life that you had with the person that you loved. And remember the gifts that were given to you during that period, rather than live in those last moments or months. I have a profound sense that God wants to minister into those situations. That he wants to bring life and hope and courage. I'd invite you to pray with me now. Do any of those visions or pictures, whilst your heads are bowed, do any of those apply to you? No one else's business. This is your business. 
And tonight you want to open your hands. You want to allow yourself to be refined rather than defined by the things that you've gone through. I'm not going to specifically call you to come forward. I'll talk about what we're going to do in a moment. But for the moment, to protect your dignity and to give you space. Let me know if God has spoken to you tonight through the sermon or through those things that I've just said by raising your hand for me, please. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You can take your hands down, so many. Thank you so much. Thank you for your courage, it's amazing. You are the most remarkable people. If you've responded to those things at home, let us know. You can leave a private message on the Facebook page you're on or you can email my colleague, pep at dundonaldelam.church. Is there anyone here tonight and you'd like to become a Christian? You've orientated your life around yourself, around something else, but tonight you need to give your heart to Jesus. Again, if you're watching online, email us or leave a message on the Facebook page. But if you're in the room, two people did this this morning after the service. Is there anybody here? Just raise your hand so I can see it. Don't be afraid or anxious. No one else is looking. Join this family, not Dundonalilam, the family of God. Find hope in Christ. Thank you so much. Lord Jesus Christ, who died and lives and will live forever and is present in this room by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you please bring grace and strength and hope to those who have opened their hearts to you tonight. Would you give grace and courage to live? for those who have responded to what you've said prophetically or in the preaching of your word. To those whose hearts have been riven by despair and sadness and who tonight come perhaps asking again but wanting the gift to become more, the giver to become more important than the gift. Would you bring your grace? And in this room would you move in power? In Jesus' name. Amen. If you've responded to Jesus Christ tonight for the first time, without raising your hand, or if you'd like to, on the way out, find out more information about becoming a Christian, then there are brown envelopes on our reception desk. Just take one. And we pray that it will help you very much as you journey on in your relationship with God. I want to invite you now to create a space for response. And this is how I'm going to do this. It's coming up to eight o'clock. So I'm going to pray a prayer of benediction. My hope is that all that want to remain, and if you're able to, I would invite you to do so, will remain for a further 10 minutes or so as we worship Almighty God and allow some space and time for him to move. But I'm cognizant of the fact that some of you have children to pick up or need to get home first to get ready for work or school or other things. So after I've pronounced the benediction, I'm going to invite those of you that need to, to go. 
I'd only ask that you leave this room um, in quietness because we will continue to meet with Almighty God here, praying for those who will make a response in a moment. And I don't want their sense of attention or focus to be broken. If you need God's grace tonight and you're able to stay and you'd like someone to pray with you, then in these last couple of songs, we'll be praying for people here at the front. It's not wacky or weird, it's just beautiful. As people put their hands on you and ask that God will give you strength and grace and comfort and courage and hope. I think tonight some destinies are being changed. And some stories are being rewritten. And I want to be part of God doing that in your heart and soul. So could the worship band please come forward? They're going to play quietly after I have pronounced this benediction and I'll give you a chance to leave. Those of you that need to, I'll invite you to stand. And those that will remain, we'll offer you the opportunity to receive prayer. Simply come forward and there'll be people on my right and on my left. We'll use these two sections at the front, please. Um, if I could invite those of you that are um, involved in our prayer ministry teams to come and be positioned here during, after the benediction. That would be wonderful. And if we need more help, I will invite those that feel able to help with that to do so. Would you stand with me, please? May the God who rewrites stories rewrite yours. May the creator who paints the dawn every morning and gifts us with a sunset every night that remind us of his faithfulness. Remind you that he is faithful. May the father who buried his son comfort you in your loss. May the father who raised him from death to life give you resurrection hope. And may the mercy, tenderness, and grace of God be yours tonight and every day. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As the band lead us now in worship, if you need to leave, God bless you. Don't forget to take a...